Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Watch Hacks, streaming exclusively on Max, and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Look, Aid is on the helmet. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Films to Be Buried With. My name is Brett Goldstein. I am a comedian, an actor, a writer, a director, a vacuum cleaner, cleaner, and I love films. As Mother Teresa once said, Let us always meet each other with a smile, for the smile is the beginning of love, and love is also the name of a 3D sex film directed by Gaspar Noé, so it can be confusing. Every week I invite a special guest over, I tell them they've died, and then I get them to discuss their life through the films that meant the most to them. And this week, my guest is the unbelievable Dominic Monaghan. If you've never heard the show before, subscribe, check out previous guests including Ricky Gervais, Nish Kumar and Catherine Ryan, amongst many other heroes and legends. Big news, I will be back at the BFI in London for a special live episode of Films to be Buried With, with the hilarious and brilliant and amazing Lolly Adifopi on Tuesday, February 5th. Tickets are on sale now and it's already half full, so go to the BFI website and get those tickets fast. The last one with Will Porter was a real treat, so you don't want to miss this. You can keep up to date with other gigs and stuff by following me on Twitter at Brett Goldstein and on Instagram at Mr. Brett Goldstein. Just more serious on Instagram, I guess. If you do enjoy the show and want to support it and get more content, please come and join me over at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein, where you'll get extra guest questions, videos, guest list tickets, recommendations and all sorts of stuff. From this episode alone, there's about 25 minutes extra chat with Dominic And in that chat, there is a bit where he makes a proper defence for the 27 endings to The Return of the King. So you really don't want to miss that. Get amongst it. And best of all, if you do want to become a Patreon member, you don't even have to hear this bit about becoming a Patreon member. You just get the whole episode completely unencumbered by ads and chat like this. Give it a look over at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein. So, here we go. Now, I'd never met Dominic before, I don't know him at all, but he got in touch over Twitter to ask to be on the podcast. And it was at that point I thought, maybe social media isn't so bad after all. I was really delighted to meet him. He invited me to his hotel suite because he's in town in London making a little film called Star Wars. What's that? Oh, just Star Wars, mate. Oh, right, never heard of it. What? We spent over two hours talking films. He's obsessed with films. He was the perfect guest. He was an absolute delight and very lovely to hang out with, and I think you're going to love this episode. So that is it for now, and I very much hope you enjoy episode 28 of Films to be Buried with. Hello, 
Hello and welcome to Feels to be Buried With. My name is Brett Goldstein and I am joined today by Where Do I Start? By a poet, a activist, an animal lover, an elf type hobbit man, a <laughs> Star Warsian, a man lost on an island forever, and a man who has flashed forward. Please welcome to the show the brilliant. Dominic Monaghan. Thank you. Nice intro. I'll clap the intro. That was cool. Um, I'm very grateful for you to do this podcast. Yeah, I of course. I've been invited to your hotel. Yeah. You are currently filming something we can't talk about at all. Oh, we can we definitely can talk about say it. Say what the thing is. Yeah, yeah, I'm filming Star Wars, which is why we're in this slightly plush hotel, the Langham in central London. He's recording Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird time in my life, a beautiful time. I was saying to a cast member on set the other day, we were just talking about where we were, and I said, we will blink and we'll suddenly be talking about it in the past tense. Yeah. And I'm aware of that, uh, that right now we're saying, isn't this amazing? What an amazing day. Isn't this a great day we're having? And it won't be long until we say, oh, that was a great day. I remember that great time, you know. I feel that way a little bit about life. I've had this, this feeling about life... For a long time, probably from my kind of late 20s, where I thought that there will be an acute moment in your life where you'll be lying in bed, not really able to move as much, and mm. you'll think, fuck, that was fast. That happened a lot faster yeah. than I expected. You know? so How Star do you Wars deal with uh, this existential panic? Because I have it all the time. I'm I have okay. it, if I'm on holiday, day mm. two of the holiday, if it's a week holiday, I'll be depressed because I think the holiday's ending, but I'm only on day two. Really? Yeah. I'm okay with that. I'm all right with death. I'm all right with um, the fact that at some point I'm going to die. Yeah. I've been to death-like places a few times in my life and it doesn't feel terrible. What do you mean death-like places? Like near death? <clears throat> yeah. Well, I've, I've been heavily concussed to a point where I was like, ooh, that's a bit weird. What's going on here? Where am I? This is a strange place. But I've also drank quite a bit of ayahuasca and ayahuasca will put you yes. in a death type place quite a lot just because i think as an animal mm. we do have that existential crisis that kind of generally flows through our existence of one day i won't be here what will that be like whereas a tiger or a, a bee doesn't tend to have that you know yeah. which is why they tend to not i mean you do have depressed tigers you will have that tigers in captivity but a normal tiger doesn't have that feeling there's a great kind of i mean as you said in the in the intro i'm, I'm an animal fan there's there's great examples in nature i learn mm. a lot in nature and one of the one of the great examples of just getting on with your life in a way that i think is probably more correct than the way that we tend to do it is if you see a thompson's gazelle or some sort of you know antelope that is getting on with its day on the serengeti mm -hmm. eating and suddenly a lion or a cheetah bursts out of the uh, long grass and chases them. In the present, they go, oh, shit, I'm going to die. I need to run, I need to run, I need to run. They run, they run, they run, they get away. And the lion loses interest or slows down. And what you'll notice with that uh, animal is they'll spend about 90 seconds violently shaking, yeah. going, oh, my God, that was terrifying, that was terrifying. And then they'll snap out of it and they'll start eating grass. So if you were to... Yeah, if you were to see them, let's say 10, 15 yeah. minutes, certainly half an hour later, you would not know that they just had what was clearly a 
near the near death experience. For us, we can have near death experiences that dictate the rest of our lives. So they don't get PTSD anymore. They don't get PTSD, or or if they do, it happens very fast. You know, right. they get it for fifteen minutes and then it's gone. So I'm all right with death. I mean, you know, Gervais obviously has some of these comments that I think he's learned from clever clog people that he's hung out <laughs> with, and then he makes it sound like it's him. Where people say to him, "Well, aren't you worried about death? What what will happen when you die?" Mm. And he says, we know all those billions of years before you came along. It'll be like that, but in reverse. You just won't be aware of it. I was okay that all these billions of years have happened before me. I'll be okay that they happen after me because I won't be around in the same way. Tell me about ayahuasca. You're near death on ayahuasca. Yeah, ayahuasca's ayahuasca's a a really interesting um, plant medicine from the Amazonian jungle. Not for everyone. I'm not. I'm not telling people to go drink ayahuasca. It's something that you have to work out for yourself. Our bodies, everything that lives on this planet, and certainly us, uh, produce something called dimethyltryptamine (DMT), and it floods into our bodies when we're born. It's in uh, women when they go through labour, and it's in people when they die. And when your body is flooded with dimethyltryptamine, the main things that you will feel is a incredible sense of euphoria. You'll tend to see the the pearly gates, white lights, ancestors. Different part, different times in your life will come back. Things that are happening in your future will come forward. All that kind of stuff. That that is the experience of dimethyltryptamine. Ayahuasca is full of dimethyltryptamine. But normally, if we if we eat something or drink something that has dimethyltryptamine in, which you know, if you eat lettuce, it's full of dimethyltryptamine. Is it? Yeah, you'll digest it. Your right. your digestive system will just go. Okay, so it's just another thing to digest, and then you'll you'll pass it through. You know, going to your ancestors. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so 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 what I uh, what ayahuasca does is fills your body with dimethyltryptamine, but then you also drink it with another thing called chacruna that does not allow you. To uh, oh, actually, it's the other way around. The chacruna does uh, is filled with dimethyltryptamine. The ayahuasca does not allow you to digest it in right. the way that you normally would. So your body then fills with dimethyltryptamine, and you have a lot of profound experiences. Some, if you were to look at it objectively, painful. Some difficult. Some euphoric. And one of the major painful things that humans tend to have in those experiences as a general rule, because we all tend to have some sort of questions and struggle with it, is death. So it will send you to death-like places and say, this is what it's like. It could be like this. It could be like that. Can you tell me one of them? Or is it yeah, I mean, that? I, you know, I had an experience. I've had like two or three now, but I had an experience once where she'd stopped my heart, the medicine. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. You know, my father is a biology teacher my mum is a nurse they both come from science don't think that that works that you can stop your heart in that way and the experience that I had was that you know my heartbeat went from normal to slower to a little less to nothing for you know a good 10-15 seconds and then came back again and in that moment you know I couldn't breathe couldn't do anything I was just floating in space uh, and the medicine was doing stuff to my body and in that what felt like eternal moment, the medicine was saying, see, it's okay, right? There's no pain here. There's no judgment here. There's no anxiety. It's not scary. You know, it's okay, right? And I was kind of like, couldn't really do anything. But I was like, yeah, it's actually all right. Like, I don't really feel one way or the other. If it's like this, yeah. it's fine because it's not amazing, but it's also not terrible. Right. So I had that. And then I've had some terrifying stuff of, you know, we're going to 
tear you apart into pieces and see how that feels. And, you know, you kind of go, oh, I don't, uh, that's, that doesn't sound like a good idea. <laughs> go, just go back to the floating in space work. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't feel like a good idea. And the medicine's like, well, you'll be all right. You know, you're still, you're going to have the experience and come out of it and I'll be with you. And uh, it's profound, you know. I mean, I think when I was younger, I was always looking. I still am looking for stuff. I think that's part of mm-hmm. what we do as, as an animal. You're always looking for stuff, searching for stuff, you know. And the things that I was looking for, you know, I was looking for in art, I guess, in music, in in literature, in acting, in film. And uh, that was great and it filled something, but I was still always looking for stuff. And when I found Ayahuasca, I thought, oh, maybe this is the thing that ultimately I've been looking for. And I think it is an aspect of that. But I think more than anything else, the world of plants, because my dad is a very accomplished amateur botanist as well as a biology teacher. And I watched him in the garden when I was a kid. I'm a big animal fan. And I watched him in the garden when I was a kid, just kind of pottering around and doing stuff. And I thought, don't see a huge amount of joy in that. You're just kind of weeding and messing about. And then I asked my dad one day, I was like, so what did you get out of gardening? What's the thing? And my dad said, well, you know, an interaction with an animal tends to be immediate, but an interaction with a garden is like an investment in your future. Because mm. you're doing something and then in a month's time you'll see the results of it, or three months' time, or a year's time. You know, you plant a walnut tree, it's not going to do anything for maybe five or six years, you know, or, or walnut seed. And I really like that idea because it, if you invest in your future, there is a future, there's something for you to look forward mm. to. And I, I just, I really engaged with that idea. And I think that's what, one of the one of the things that has really made sense in my life has been this exploration with plant medicine because lots of people go to the jungle to drink ayahuasca and that's that's great if, if did you do if, it in the jungle i did it in uh, peru yeah in, oh, in, uh, just down river from a city called iquitos and um that's great people go to the jungle to drink ayahuasca it's kind of a loud plant everyone hears about it in the same way that you might hear about you know uh, peyote or yeah. you know uh, magic mushrooms or whatever but I was sat with um, one of the facilitators, the head facilitator one day, talking about it, talking about ayahuasca, because ayahuasca that night had said, hey, listen, you're down in the jungle, you don't need to just drink me all this time, because she, she kind of speaks to you, she has a presence, you know. There's other stuff out there. So I spoke to him the following morning and said, you know, ayahuasca said, don't drink me, there's more stuff in the jungle to to have a look at, what do you think? And he was like, well, look out this window here. So we were looking out this window. And, he, you know, there's, it's the jungle, so there's hundreds, hundreds of trees that you could see. And he said, you know, out of these hundreds of trees, that big one there, that one there, that one there, that one there. And he pointed out like nine or ten, and he was like, you can diet all these jungles. You can take the leaves, the bark, the plants, the seeds, the branches, and you can diet with them, and you can have a relationship with them. And it might take a day, it might take five days, but at some point it will teach you the lesson that you're supposed to learn from that particular plant. And uh, that's amazing, you know. Yeah. And, and I've had those experiences, and they seem to be quite profound and quite true you know love this have you done peyote done peyote yeah in the deserts of uh los angeles you know kind of palm desert it's good there's there's a masculinity about peyote that that is different from a femininity that is ayahuasca you know and um you know some of the things that have happened in my life people dying that i've loved has been quite a profound experience being in love has been quite a profound experience achieving stuff in your work has been quite a profound experience and then you know, the other thing has been plants, this relationship with animals and plants, you know. Uh, mm. And the relationship with animals is amazing and gives a lot back. But it's still it's still kind of harnessed in this world. The animals live in the world that you 
live in, but sometimes the plants that you might have a relationship with actually transport you to a completely different world. You know, I'm agnostic. I still, I still profess to be an agnostic. I think it's, at least for me, I think it's an icky thing to say that you're an atheist. I think it's quite arrogant to say that you're an atheist because you mm. don't know. No one knows. Yeah, you know, you can't, you can't be so sure. I think everyone is not sure there's a God. But if you say, oh, I know categorically there is no God, well, how do you know? You don't know. You yeah. can't prove it. In the same way that I can't prove that there is a God, you know. So I, I'm quite fiercely agnostic, but there is no question that in my experience I've been to different dimensions and seen things that don't make sense and, and had experiences with creatures and, and characters that seem to be God-like. Mm. And, I've, and I've said to them, are you God? Because it's really? been that experience, you know. So What did they say? No, they said, oh. I'm just a plant, you know. <laughs> Which is which is amazing in itself, you know, because that's just a plant you really hit. Yeah, I'm just a plant. Don't get it twisted. I mean, that's that's a that's a brilliant thing because yeah. you know, I was I was kind of flatlined in front of this presence that was big and bright and overwhelmingly powerful and all knowing and all you know, mm. kind of seemed to have always been there and and able to do you know inexplicable things, and I was weeping and had this moment of clarity where I said, oh, my God, are you God? You know, are you God? And, and the plant said, no, I'm just a plant. <laughs> chill it's, out. It's, yeah, chill out, man. It seems powerful to you yeah. <clears throat> because you don't live in this space. To me, in this space, this is just me walking around. I can't do the stuff that you do. You have two yeah. legs. You can go walk and get a glass of milk. I can't do that. That's profound to me. But in this dimension that that I'm in, to you, this is crazy because I can change and show you things mm. and, you know, almost like magic type stuff. So it's amazing. Like I said at the very start of the conversation, I think it's worth saying again, it's not for everyone. Yeah. And I, it's great at dealing with anxiety and depression and uh, anyone with PTSD, they, they treat a lot of soldiers with it on, mm. on the kind of down low and stuff. But it's not for everyone. I think some people, certainly people that have, that have long standing relationships with prescription medication can really struggle with the plants because the plants do not like the prescription medication. So if you combine those two things, it can really cause a lot of psychosis. You have to be off that stuff. Now, if, if you've spent 15, 20 years on an antidepressant mm. or on an antipsychotic and they say you have to be off it for a week before coming to the jungle, that week could be your last week on earth. So you have, yeah. you have to work out what you can and can't do. Um, do you know that ET is a plant? Really? Yeah. The alien? Yeah. Okay, so talk about that. Steven Spielberg believes E.T. is a plant. Like, he's from a plant planet and he is a plant. Okay. He's a plant with little feet. Right, right. Yeah. So he's like a... Which is it, probably why people are profoundly affected by E.T. Yes, it's I was too. So, so that's great. Do you yeah. read that in an article? Yeah, I mean, I'd have to check back on it. But it's all, <laughs> I remember, I've only read it once. Right. I've not seen it come up again, so maybe I dreamt it whilst I was on peyote. But... Yeah. I mean, it makes sense because his planet is green and planty and he's carrying plants, he's obsessed with plants. He's he obsessed with plants, plants. he hears plants, his kids. does amazing stuff with plants. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, obviously I know that you have a lot of people talk about E.T. Yes. In, in this particular conversation, but I, I do remember, I, I actually don't remember it because I was too young, but my mum said that... Don't she, watch this. <laughs> she, well, she, she took us, she took my brother and I to the cinema with my dad and I think she said she almost regretted taking me... Because she said I was, like, inconsolable at the end of the yeah, movie. Yeah. Just sat in my seat and wouldn't move. And she was like, oh, I think we made a mistake here. You've gone too far. I'm still like that now. 
As an actor, I learnt the speech that Elliot says to E.T. when he thinks that he's dead, where he comes over and says, mm. look at what they've done to you, I'm so sorry, and I'll remember you all my life every day. I, I, I learnt that yeah. in my house. There's no one else around on, on an old VHS rewind. <laughs> and I learnt it and could do it. And it was one of those, you know, when you're knitting, you're starting to put, you know, pieces together and then suddenly you have something that looks like oh this is a this is a scarf i can actually knit and when i was a kid i was like trying stuff out and that et moment for me when i was about 12 i thought i, I can kind of do this i can learn lines i can learn lines a little past that i can emote yeah it can upset me it can take me to a place and it, but it was private i didn't do it in front of my mom and dad yeah. you know i did it later on in school plays and stuff so et's an amazing Do you, I, I was looking at your uh, career and I realised I think I've seen nearly everything you've done. Nice. And that's partly because uh, you're in the biggest things of... I was. Are you the most successful actor in the world? <laughs> because aren't you in <clears throat> sort of money? And I'm not asking how much you get paid, but it's in the stuff you're in. Mm. You're in the highest earning things of all time mm. repeatedly. Yeah. Aren't yeah. you the connecting <clears throat> thing between Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Lost? I mean, these are three... Yeah. Huge, cultural, massive fucking things. There's no one else in your... Yeah, well, the only other person there. that's in there, but there is an exception to that. Go on. Uh, so Andy Serkis was in oh, yes. Lord of the Rings, Star Wars. Star Wars, and he was in a Marvel film. So I was in okay. Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, a Marvel film, and Lost. Which was the Marvel film? Uh, Wolverine. Okay, yeah. The worst uh, Wolverine movie. <laughs> um, yeah, I've been, I've been lucky. I think, I think the thing to also, the caveat to that is people don't tend to see the bits in between. So that's true, and it's very complimentary. People will say, oh, wow, you were in yeah. Lord of the Rings, and then you were also in Lost. That was amazing. Yeah. You're like, yeah, I was in Lord of the Rings, and I was in Lost, but there was about two years there where I didn't you really did work, work or I did kind of shitty movies, right. and then I did Lost, and people go, oh, my God, there he is. He's in Lost. So then you do Lost for a little bit, yeah. and then you disappear and do movies that no one really knows about, and then suddenly you show up in X-Men, you know. So then you did flash forward. Then I did flash like forward, which words. yeah, flash forward was great. You know, I think I think flash forward probably struggled a little bit with being so close to Lost, and it was yeah. made by ABC, the same company that made Lost. And obviously, ABC went out and said, "Lost is coming into its final season. We need a new Lost." Mm. And I think it's a bit tricky when that happens because even though there was obviously some similarities, flashbacks, flash forwards, and the creators tried to get away from it as much as they could. There's always going to be comparisons because that's mm. how it began. That was its origin. And then if you've got a show that was a worldwide smash hit, people go, okay, let's see the next one. And if it's not a worldwide smash yeah. hit, then it's a, comp a complete failure. Flash forward was, was oh, a good show. Flash forward. Yeah, it was a great show. Well, something I wanted to know, and maybe you can't answer this, when you were, spoiler alert, killed in lust yeah did you ask to leave were you surprised by this story was it tragic for you How, like as you as an actor it's a lovely death you have a very heroic thank you yeah. beautiful death yeah but was it like i've i've had enough of lost or was it like oh i didn't know i was gonna die how it, was that for you because you've been in it four years then was it three, oh, three uh, okay. it was the end of season three it wasn't a surprise because it was coming it was kind of heading that way right i you know, I was pretty close with Damon Lindelof when he did the pilot. JJ and he did the pilot. He wrote the pilot with JJ. JJ directed the pilot, but Damon Lindelof was on set all the time. And Damon and I became quite close friends. And 
I had said to him, if you ever leave the show, I'll go with you. He was oh, like, okay, okay, that's cool to know. <laughs> okay, and I'm going to kill you by he, the end of the season. Yeah, yeah. And then later on, I think as we started season three, I just kind of said to him, I'm kind of becoming the babysitter. Do you know what I mean? Everyone's yeah. off on these adventures and I'm becoming the guy that stays on the beach with the baby, yeah. which is fine for an episode or two, but it got a little boring. And then the only other thing was like, is he a junkie? Is he straight? Is yeah. he a junkie? Is he straight? So he'll relapse and he'll have a crazy episode and then he'll sort himself out yeah. and then he'll be straight and boring with the baby for a while. I just felt like a part of it had run its course. Okay. So I kind of presented that to Damon, in, but that was more along the lines of, can we do something else? Yeah. And he said, let me think about it. And then a, a few weeks... I mean, it's a long, good news and bad news. Yeah, yeah. It was a little bit like that. A few weeks later, I it was a long time ago now, but I think like a few weeks later, he came back to me and said, I've worked out a way to write for you really well this season, but it ends with your death. Right. And I said, okay, uh, cool. Um can I think about it? He said, well, you can think about it, but I think we're heading on that train anyway. And I said, okay, cool. And then I, th then I thought about it and thought, okay, th I, this is going to be like, pardon the pun, but I'm going to lose things in, in leaving lost, mm. which is okay. And I'll deal with that. But in terms of getting a crack of the whip, yeah, yeah, this is going to be my best crack of the whip because they're going to kill all the characters in a kind of like, we don't have much time left. Hoik that guy off, yeah. hoik that girl off. And I thought this will be, you know, it was the end of season three. It was a big moment. It's a big deal. <laughs> and it's consistently voted as one of, <clears throat> excuse me, like the big deaths yeah. in modern day television. And of course, there were things that I lost. You know, I went through a, I went through a breakup and, and said bye to friends and things got complex. And, and uh, I've never been back to Hawaii since. Really? I would. It's just not been on the bucket list. You know, mm. if you've lived somewhere for three years, it's there. You've done yeah. it. You don't necessarily need to. So... Did I know that I was going to die? Yes. Was it painful? Sure, in in some ways. But ultimately, I wouldn't have had it any other way, you know, because yeah. it's it seems to be... I mean, obviously, I, it's harder for me because I was in the show, so it's hard for me to have a perspective on it. But it seems to be that, like, people do remember Charlie. They know Charlie. They know his story. Mm. They know how he died. And I just thought, well, that's, that's, great, death. that's great. That's what you want. Yeah. You know? um, it's a great show. People still talk about it to this yeah. day. I think I think Rings gets just a little bit more attention. Mm. If I'm walking around an airport or a hotel or something, it will tend to be you're the guy from Lord of the Rings right. or you're one of the guys from Lord of the Rings. And I will get lost a lot more, but it seems to be probably about 65, 35 Rings. So my question, that's what I wanted to ask you. You seem like a spiritual man. Mm. Given the fact that your career, despite the two years where you made shitty films or whatever, Certainly on paper is one of the most successful careers I've seen of an mm. actor. And you seem grounded, etc. Do you think that's all luck? Do you think there's a spiritual thing to it? Do you think it's because you're very nice? Like, how, Or do you think, how did this... Because most people don't get to plan their career. I'm mm. sure you didn't plan this. No, no. So do you think, do you ever think, I have no idea how this all happened, or do you think, I know exactly how all of this happened in this order? Yeah, I think it's like a little combo of all those things. I mean, right. I think you have to have those things. You certainly have to have a sense of luck. You know, if I because I was the right age at the right time, I was in Lord of the Rings. If yeah. I was if I was two years younger, I probably wouldn't have been able to do it. If I was three or four years older, I probably wouldn't have been able to do it. You know, yeah. they were looking for people in their early to mid twenties. I was twenty three right. when I started it. So if I'd have been 
20, I think I would have looked 15 and it wouldn't have worked. Yeah, yeah. And if I'd have been 27, it probably wouldn't have worked either. So there is a bit of fortitude in terms of that. I've always based a lot of my career on tenacity. I am always up for a challenge and I won't tend to let things go, you know. I, I'm all right with my obsessions, but I like they're under control. But I will tend to get obsessed about things and not let it go, yeah. you know. So, And you need that tenacity with your agent where you can say, why didn't I, you know, I want to go in for that. Oh, they go, right. okay, cool. And then Tuesday you go, what happened? Oh, we're still talking to them. And then Tuesday afternoon, did you get them on the phone? You know, like you have to be annoying and okay. be okay with being annoying, you know. So, you know. Any actors listening to this are going to annoy their agents so much. <laughs> me again. It's me again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, you have to be professional yeah. about it. If I read something on Monday where I say I'd really like to be in that project, then I'll call my agent on the Monday and they'll say, right, we'll take care of it. And I'll say, okay, I'll leave it with you. Now, I'll definitely talk to them before Thursday about yeah. how's that going. And if you say, yeah, yeah, I'm on it. I'm just waiting for a phone call. Then I'll wait for them to tell me about that phone call. But if I don't hear about that phone call, then on Friday I'll say, what happened to that phone call? You know, like you have to have that because you're sailing your own ship, you know, Mm because they're sailing the the agent ship. They have 40 clients and they're like, cool, I'm a great agent and I've got him and him and him. But you're on your own ship, which is your actor ship. And you have to go, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm coming through, you know, this is my lane type thing. So I have the tenacity. I always knew it wasn't going to be the same for me because like I, I know that Paul Newman was a great actor, but I also know that Paul Newman was six foot with steely blue eyes and a stud. And so was Steve McQueen. And so was a young Clint Eastwood. And, you know, I'm five, seven and I don't come from the United States. And, you know, I don't look like some of my peers that I grew up with. I don't look like Orlando. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't look like Colin Farrell. I don't look like Ewan McGregor. I knew it was going to be a different path for me. And part of that path was being tenacious. Part of that path was not giving up. Part of that path was, uh, staying in gratitude i think that's a huge thing you know you know i i kind of got onto the meditation trail about four years ago and a lot of gratitude stuff was is in that place but i was aware that before that i was i was living in gratitude you know i was always like this is fantastic this is great there's nowhere else i'd rather be you know that's a lesson that probably i learned from pete jackson i mean you know pete jackson was exhausted and pulled in so many different directions on, on rings. I mean, you know, the hobbits would usually be in first. So my pickup was usually like 5.15, 5.20 in the morning. And we would wrap at around about 7, but then it would take us about an hour to wrap. So you get home at 8.30 and then you're up the next day at, you know, 5.20. Pete would be on set, obviously, first thing with us. But then when we wrapped, he would go straight to watch the rushes from the right. day before and that was two or three different units. We'd sit and watch two or three hours of rushes. And then he'd go home and then he'd call LA and New York oh, yeah. to make sure that those guys were cool. So he was probably averaging four, maybe five hours sleep a night, six days a week because it was non-union. <clears throat> For three years or something. Yeah, yeah. And he was always in a good mood and he was always happy and he was always getting the job done. And mm. he said to us at some point, because someone had asked, it wasn't me, but I was with that group of people, like, where would you get your energy from, Pete? How, do you, how come do you have all this energy? Like, we had a day off the other day and you don't yeah. have days off. And Pete said, there's nowhere else I'd rather be. This is where I want I to be. You know? Yeah. And I think he still feels like yeah. nowadays. And, and I feel like, too, like, mm. uh, if I'm going to be jet-lagged or tired or in a bad mood or had an argument with a friend, mm. I'd much rather be on a film set and have that experience than be at home playing PlayStation, you know. 
Love it. Yeah. I've forgotten to tell you something. What? Oh, fuck. Oh, it's really bad. I should have told you this when I got here. Fuck. Oh, shit. I should have, I should have warned you because we've been talking for quite a while and I haven't told you. Oh, I know. That's going to be. I don't know how to say it. <laughs> fuck. I'm just, I think you're going to be absolutely fine with it, though, given everything. <laughs> But I should have said it up top, and I, I'm an idiot. But anyway, I'll just, I'll oh, fuck it, I'll, I'll say it. Uh, you, you died. You yeah, died. Fuck. Okay. So sorry. Or not? I yeah, mean, that's all right. You seem cool with it. Yeah, I'm okay with it. How did you die? Now, so I was going to ask you this: Is this yeah. how would I like to die, or is this how do I think I'm going to die? It's your interpretation of that question. I think. I prefer. How do you think you're going to die? Well, no. Either way, it's absolutely fine. It's what you think. I have asked you how you died. Well, I think I'll probably just keel over from exhaustion as, <laughs> you know. Gratitude. In my, yeah, you. gratitude. Oh, in, in my early 90s, where my system just says, you know, you've, you've, been, you've been pushing it. And you how know. would you like to, Is that how you'd like to die? That's how I think I'm going to die. Okay. A little bit like Don Quixote Leon, uh, in uh, Godfather, just running around after his grandchild and just... Oh, he's Picking oranges or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, just, he's just been pushing it for so long and he's been... The train has been running for so long and he just keels over. That's how I think I'll probably go. How would I like to go? Probably after reaching a newfound level of nirvana or euphoria in meditation my system just explodes you, know? you mean like uh luke skywalker yourself yeah something like that meditate yourself to death yeah like i i i don't tend to meditate more than 15 minutes okay. i just think that's about as much as i personally need in the morning and maybe at night i'll do it as well but let's say i push it and i've been meditating for a couple of hours and, you know, my experience just says, you've done it. You've hit the heights of what you need to do. When you've I just completed this. Explode in a fit of joy. Oh, wow. I love that. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you're, you, you just have no idea about an afterlife? Um, you... I, don't, I don't have any idea of an afterlife. My understanding... It's unusual. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, well, my assumption of it is that it won't be... It won't be me having the experience. It will be whatever elements of energy were inside me then mm-hmm. just, you know, turn into something else and have the experience of being a plant or being a table or, you know, being a lamp. I don't think the Dom thing goes on. Mm-hmm. And I don't think continuing on th- that plan ever goes, oh, that's right. At one point I was Dom and I was in Lord of the Rings. I think just parts of the, what energetically makes up me becomes the ether and i'm okay with that you know i've got good news Mm. there is a heaven after all oh that's good and you're not a lamp sweet you're still dumb okay and uh uh and you you're you're absolutely fine and there's loads of people out there that you like loads of plants lots of animals good all your favorite animals there there's tigers there none of them are depressed that's cool uh the antelope and the gazelles none of them have ptsd even briefly Everyone's happy, but they're obsessed with films. They're obsessed with films, isn't that Wait, weird? that does sound like heaven to me. Yeah, and yeah. all they want to do is talk about your life through film. And cool. the first thing they ask you is, what is the first film you remember seeing? So, I don't have a very good long-term memory. Okay. Things tend to come at me like Polaroid images, you know. I don't really remember too much until I was kind of six or seven. 
I think that might be the active brain because the active brain is quite good at short-term stuff and not yeah. good at long-term stuff. And that was in there for a while. I do remember my parents dropping my brother and I off at matinees. We grew up in Germany and they would have matinees, which I'm assuming would be kind of midday till one thirty, something like that. And we saw a few things that stood out. One was called, I don't know if this film even exists anymore, it's called Tommy's Tiger T-Shirt. So Tommy's Tiger T-Shirt was about a little kid yeah. who had a T-Shirt with a tiger kind of embossed on the front. Yeah. And he wasn't very good at things like sport or mass. Do you remember it? It's fucking, I think it's called Sammy Super T-Shirt. Oh, really? Is, is it a German film? Maybe. Because I've seen it, but maybe I've seen it dubbed as a, as an English film, but it was called Sammy Super T-Shirt, and it makes him run, yeah, run the track really fast. And oh, then see, the I end, remember it as Tommy's. And at the end, his T-Shirt doesn't work, and then he has to run for real. Right, which he, he does all right, right? Do, yeah, he does it fine, don't worry. So I remember, yeah, so I remember that bit. That's interesting that I remember it as Tommy. It's yeah. probably because of the Frosty's thing. Tommy's Tiger T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, um, so I remember it as Tommy's Tiger T-shirt, but I remember it being kind of a big thing for my brother and I that like yeah. we came out of the cinema and then we like found our favourite T-shirt and that made us run fast or play good football, you know. So and they used to have was think, it in German? You were watching films in German in Germany? No, I think it would have been dubbed into English okay. or subtitled. Into so you English. were growing up in English language, but in German? Yeah, with my parents who were both English, but. Um, Excuse me, we spoke like rudimentary German, but at that point in our lives, I don't think we did. Okay. And I remember, I don't know what company this, this was, but in front of every matinee, they had Trafalgar Square and you had the bells of London. So it'd be like, ding, 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 it's ding, the ding. Children's, children's Film Foundation. Is that what it is? Yes. So it starts with like a very yeah, close-ish yeah. image of like pigeons, then it zooms yeah, all the way yeah, out yeah. to Trafalgar Square. And they did that film. There are two films. There's Sammy Super T-shirt. And then he also did a film where they get stuck on a ski... What's chairlift, not a chairlift. The thing. You oh, stand you're right. In. Cable car. Cable car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The cable car gets. Didn't see that one. Yeah, carry on. I love. Yeah, it. so so I remember that. Yeah. So that that was a really early film for me, and then the other one, which is available because because I saw it on um, Amazon. I'm probably mm. going to buy it so that my brother and I can reminisce. Was the amazing Mr. Blondin? Do you remember that? Yeah. Scene? Fucking hell. Yeah. Cause, yeah. So that was a big one for us, and and actually, uh, I'm interested to watch it now because I remember it being quite. Quite scary. Spooky. Yeah. It was like ghostly children and ghostly adults. I think I think the kids go away to the countryside for mm. some reason. They end up in a house and they meet these friendly ghosts that take them back in time. Yeah. But then also the ghosts are slightly unhappy and they need help from the kids. And the ghosts kind of get, like, I don't want to say angry, but they get frustrated and annoyed. So there's doors banging and windows closing really fast and stuff. And the kids are like, oh, we made a mistake. So yeah. I remember that being kind of, like, I wouldn't watch that at night time because we've got that on VHS. Uh, Sorry, it was you and your brother? Yeah. Is your brother older? Yeah, brother's yeah. older, 16 months older. And he likes okay. movies just fine, right. but he wouldn't watch it in the same way that I would. So what would happen was, so we watched films at the cinema, obviously, but then on a Saturday morning, so that my parents could, like, not get up super early with us, my dad would bring home a film Friday night, but we couldn't watch it Friday night. But he'd get as excited, he'd go, oh, you know, whatever, I brought you the, the rescuers. We'd be like, oh, great, the rescuers. So what would happen was I would creep down before my brother in the morning, watch it, then my brother would come down, we would then re-watch it, then my brother would go out and play, and I would re-watch it. Great. So by the time my parents came down, I, w- I would have watched it three times, you know, and then I'd be bellyaching my parents to watch it again that day. So I, I was moving into that kind of obsession-y type thing yeah. with movies and love of movies. 
But so those are the two ones that stood out the most in terms of formative uh, right. child things. Yeah. Great answers. What is the film that scared you the most? Well, I have my first notable mention here, which I won't, which I won't bang on about too much. Uh, but I think it's worth mentioning The Exorcist. You can mention The Exorcist. Just because I think it's either Freakin or Linda Blair, but I think it was Freakin who said that they felt like somehow evil had, had managed to get itself into the celluloid, you know, yeah. and managed to find its way actually into the film process. And there's something to be said for that with The Exorcist because, mm. like, I actually watched the, the opening of it on the plane coming over just because I thought, oh, The Exorcist, I'm going to talk about this. Yeah. And, you know, it's Max van Sydow in, in the desert finding the little devil kind of piece and then dogs fighting in, in the desert and, and weird, like, smash zooms and all this kind of stuff. That alone is scary, let alone when, when yeah. you get into the little kid stuff. But I didn't watch The Exorcist until I was probably... 16 on my own in the house in the daytime wouldn't watch it at night still wouldn't watch it at night and um oh there's that just superb moment when sid out comes in for the first time to meet the kid and he says uh i'm here to help you and the devil talking inside the kid says then why don't you loosen the straps there's something so yeah. dirty and nasty about that because you know it's not the kid. Yeah. And the yeah, kind of and like the the voice and also instead of the devil going, you know, whatever, like I can swear on this podcast, right? Of course you can. You know, instead of the devil saying like, Please. you know, fuck you, or you know, you're yeah. a son of a bitch or whatever, it's trying to like underhandedly get its own way. You know, well, yeah. why don't you just loosen the straps? Just give me a little bit of leeway. You know, oh, it's creepy. So, so that's that's a notable mention for me. But the film that scared me the most and mm. continues to scare me the most now, and would not watch it on my own, wouldn't wouldn't choose to watch it anyway, is the first Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, okay. Yeah, it just freaked me out, man. It yeah. just it just caught me at a very formative time in my life. I was probably thirteen, going on fourteen. Watched it with my brother and a few other people. I think my cousins at night time. And uh, it just scared the living daylights out of me. There was, there was a kid in our local area that everyone called Freddy who wore an, a Freddy Krueger uh, shirt yeah. and had like a fake glove and he would walk around at night. He was our age, but he'd like walk around at night and have this glove. So I was like, oh God, he's, he's actually here. You Am know? I dreaming? Fucking hell. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just just a brilliant premise. We tend to watch horror movies at night. Yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street is generally it's all It's such at a night. good idea. It's about, you mustn't sleep. it's about what it's happens brilliant. when you sleep. Yeah. You, you know, you watch a film, then you fall asleep. You can't control your dreams. Uh, I was having issues at that point with sleep and dreams in general. And then I remember having this uh, dream about Freddy Krueger mm -hmm. kind of terrorising my brother and I. And it was dark in, in the dream in my house. And like I heard like a noise and then all the lights came on and in the corner of my room was my brother and Freddy Krueger had like cut his hand off and he like looked up at me and there's like blood everywhere and he was like, oh, you took my hand. And it was just completely and utterly traumatising. I was really struggling with it to the point where I remember my brother telling me like, as I was going to sleep at night, I'd be like whimpering like a dog, you know. <laughs> and my brother's, we, we shared a bunk bed, you know, and my brother was up top. He was like, it's all right, Dom, it's all right. I was like, yeah, it's okay, it's okay. And I'd like try to fall asleep. <laughs> So it was like a couple of weeks of just, I mean, fair play to Wes Craven mm. to, to be able to have <clears throat> done that. 
Uh, and that remains the scariest movie I've ever experienced. What, what happened to Freddie in your street? He's called Ian, and he just grew. <laughs> he, just, he just grew up, you know. He he loved those movies, and when yeah. those movies, you know, obviously you had the sequel, and then you had Dream Warriors, and all this kind yeah. of stuff. And when those movies were huge, it was kind of cool for him to walk around in there, Freddy Krueger. I mean, it was like you know, black and red and black yeah, and red, yeah. and like Dennis the Menacing. Whatever uh, happened to Ian? I don't know what happened to Ian. Yeah. I think he just grew up and grew out of it. But he was terrifying because there was a park nearby that you had to like walk through to get to my house. Yeah, and. We weren't part of like the rough crowd, but the rough crowd would sit, you know, on the on the swings and the slides and stuff. And that Ian guy wasn't that hard, but he did. Kind he did of, have knives for Yeah, hands. he did affect this Kruger thing. So sometimes you'd walk past the gang and he'd be like, yes. with a hat on. Did he have the hat? Did, uh, he did have the hat, but not as often the hat as the glove and the and the jumper. I love Ian. But if yeah. Ian's listening to this, please get in touch. I mean, he's, I guess he was just a film fan, and you've got to give him that. But yeah. it did. It did. Was he, of, also, I'm imagining like an eight-year-old <laughs> doing this. How old is this? Um, no, he's probably like fourteen or fifteen. Okay. He's probably like my age. So, right. a scary movie that then had some parts of the real world yeah. bleeding into it. Yeah, it was. It was uh, I feel that way about the, the evil it had got into the film. I feel that way about the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. Right. Okay. But there's something about it that feels grubby in a way like this doesn't feel like that they've made this yeah it feels like it's sort of a like snuff film yeah it's really nasty. horrible what's the film that made you cry the most so i've got a few notable mentions here because i it's not that i struggle to cry in real life but i probably struggle to cry in real life more than i do watching films me too yeah they just uh can it, you cry in front of people in real life? Yeah. Yeah, I can cry in front of people in real life if something's happened, you know, if, I've, if someone's died or I've gone through a breakup or something traumatic's happened. But I can I can weep in front of people with, in watching movies. Okay. And it's I don't mind. You don't you know? okay. So a, lo- a lot of films will get me. I mean, like, off the top of my head, you know, I mean, sometimes Empire Strikes Back will make me cry. Yeah. You know, the the hand going into Carbonite. But in terms of the ones that I've, that I've written down as the notable mentions... I mean, E.T., I'm just going to say that and not say sure. too much more about E.T. because that's, that's kind it's of... It's a very game. sad plant film. Yeah. Is it called The Bell Jar and the Butterfly? Or the Butterfly oh, the Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Yeah, Diving oh, Bell and the Butterfly. Great film. So his journey from obviously being a very dynamic mm. editor, was it French Vogue or something like yeah, that? Yeah, he made French Vogue. And then, you know... Just... He's the man, if you've not seen it, who has locked-in syndrome and can only communicate through one eye. One Is he still alive, that guy? No, he died. Right. But uh, it's a great film. It's a much better film than it sounds. Yeah, it does. And, and it's, 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 it's a journey. It's a sexy film. It's a weirdly very yeah. sexy film. For yeah. It's, it's a traumatic journey as well, because at one yeah. point they you're seeing it in the first person and they come over to him and say, unfortunately, your eye is not going to work yeah. anymore, so we're going to have yeah. to sew it up. And you God. watch from the inside of his vision them sewing up his eye and you hear him saying, holy shit, they're taking my eye and there's nothing yeah. I can do about it. I can't kind of go, oh, hang on a second, let me, let me yeah. have a think about this. Um, yeah, it's full half an hour. It's just you're the eye. The camera is just the eye. Yeah, for the first half an hour. Yeah, extraordinary performance by the guy. Yeah, brilliant movie and one of those experiences which I live for, where when the closing credits start, I'm just sat like, yeah, I, 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 like I'm, I'm, I'm just, dead. Uh, sometimes I'll sit and watch all the closing credits. Yeah. If it's a Marvel movie and you think there's something going to happen at the end, or if it's a film that you've been involved in, or if it's just a film that you absolutely, genuinely loved and you want to stay for that yeah. moment, 
But my favourite experience of that is you're so emotionally fucked yeah. that you're just locked in your chair going, I need a minute, I need yeah. a minute. Because I had that with E.T. with my mum where she's like, come on, we've got to go now. And I was just like... <laughs> <laughs> so there was that with that film. And then the last notable mention that I'll, that I'll say, which is one of my favourite films ever, and it's flawed and it's a mess and a lot of people don't like it. But it's very special to me is the fountain, Aronofsky's. I fucking love the fountain. Love it. it. That's right, obviously. I can see that. Yeah, it's It's it's, fucking great. Other worlds and it's and it's a big concept, high concept stuff, and it's weird and it's easy to call it pretentious and a mess. And it is a little pretentious and it is a little flawed, but superb. I think the thing with Aronofsky is he doesn't do irony. And I think it makes people uncomfortable. I think that he's sort of unashamedly... The Fountain is a film where he goes, I'm going to make a film about love and death mm. and I'm not even going to pretend yeah. it's not that. Yeah. I'm sincerely mm. making a film about love and death yeah, yeah. and what it means to me. And, and, and Fuck you all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and also what it means to me in the big... In the, in the grand scheme of things, yeah. I'm not going to say, oh, I'm not sure, mm. or, or what do you think, or, you know, maybe I'm not right about this. He's like, fuck yeah. you, this is, this, I'm a genius, does that feel? I mean, <laughs> yeah. in terms of his ability as a filmmaker, I think there's some real level of genius in there. I mean, yeah. the, the camera work alone is worth watching for, the editing alone is worth watching for, but the performances are amazing. I, you know, I watched it with someone that I was deeply in love with. I went through a breakup with someone the same person uh, mm-hmm. that was still kind of in love with and the fountain represented, you know, the unrequited love, the love that didn't quite work, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Extraordinary piece of work. The the soundtrack's incredible. Exactly. And I think I'll cry once they get to the kind of spaceman who's travelling towards a dying star yeah. and Rachel Weiss turns up and says, you know, you need to finish it. And he says, I don't know how. And she says, you will. Which is which is about fifteen minutes into the film, twenty minutes into the film. I'll have a little bit of a like a, <laughs> and then control myself, and then throughout the rest of the film, which is another good hour and a half, yeah. I'm just a total basket case, you know. So, so I don't want to keep going on, but that's my last notable mention. Oh, okay, so what's your actual? The answer? film that makes me cry the most is Inside Out. Oh fucking fucking man. Jesus wept. That is insane, man. I mean, Pixar. <clears throat> I think you. I think you could argue quite strongly that Pixar are the best, most yeah. successful film studio in the world. And I've, and I've heard, I don't know if this is true or not, that they have like a formula as to don't worry about making people cry, write the story, and then we'll bring in this, almost like this program, this computer program that will then implant into the, the script itself and say, these are the things that you need to do to make people cry. Really? Yeah, yeah. So they're no. like, we just have this formula, which is why, you know, which is why they do it so effectively. <clears throat> what I love, I love all of Pixar's films. Mm. There's nothing that I've... Well, I wasn't... Cars is Pixar, right? Yeah, Cars is... I wasn't a... crazy on Cars. Some all right stuff about it, but I wasn't crazy about it. Everything else, extraordinary. Mm. The thing that got me about, about Inside Out was this quite high concept. It's incredibly profound, Inside Out. And yeah. And complicated. And... Yeah. And saying an amazing thing, not only to kids but also to adults which is like the emotions that we have are significant Mm -hmm. and sometimes we can confuse the fact that oh that's a sad thing that happened which means it's a bad thing that happened but it doesn't necessarily need to be you know we can learn amazing things through death through failure through triumph as well you know Mm. and um 
the little girl Riley is obviously adorable. And so my, my, when I first started watching it, I thought, okay, this is going to be an amazing story about this kid, Riley. And she's going to have these cartoon characters in her head that are going to be kind of like the, the B or C story. That's yeah. going to be like the circus for the kids, you know, loud noises and fart noises and stuff. And that's fine. But the story's about Riley. But what you come to learn is, no, they, these stories happen at the same time. They both have weight. And the story of joy and the story yeah. of sadness yeah. is amazing. And at first you go, oh, that's easy to fob off sadness and think, oh, fuck off, you're just a depressive little mm. shit and you're annoying and you ruin everything. But the, the, the moment that it gets me the most is when you see Riley miss the penalty in the hockey game and mm. she goes and sits on the tree and then the hockey team and the mom and dad come over and say, it doesn't matter, like, yeah. it's okay, we all went through this together. And Joy, who's been giving sadness a hard time throughout the whole movie, yeah. has that light bulb moment of, oh, you, sad things can be valuable for us, they can they can help us grow and learn. And I'm in the it's cinema. Cried, I mean, mate, I'm in the cinema just like, <laughs> fucking hell, that is true of everyone's life, including mine. And what an amazing thing to teach kids at that, age you know and the things you teach parents there's that bit in it which i think is so fucking deep where the the mum or the dad says to her you need to, and the mum says to her you need to be a, a strong girl for daddy because things are going thing and that's what sort of sets it off right. is her not being allowed right her suppressing right all her emotions i'm like right. Fuck, man that's Darn it mate. that's how you do and it she runs away and then she comes back and she yeah. comes back and says you know i i, I can't I can't be that person for you, you know. And yeah. they say, it's all right, we just want you to be back, you know. Yeah, it gets me too. Yeah, so Inside, Inside Out is the one that just threw me. And, and um, I, I would, if I'm having a debate with someone, I would probably say that that's the best Pixar movie to date. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's good, man. Yeah, no, good answer. What is a film that you love, but most people sort of think it's shit, that <laughs> it's critically... People don't like this film, but you guys, you're all idiots. This is the great one. Yeah. So I have a real soft spot for... I'm a, I'm a football fan. Yeah. I have a real soft spot for Escape to Victory. Okay. Which, you know, when you when you watch it objectively now is kind of crap. Yeah. You know, Sylvester Stallone is in prison. And in goal. And in goal, yeah. <laughs> with a bunch of uh, footballers, basically. Bobby Moore, Ozzy Ardiles, Pele. Beckenbauer? I think Maybe. so. Could be. And he, alongside they, hatch a plan that in the game that they're going to play for their prison, they will escape. It's called Victory, I think, in the States, but it's called Escape to Victory here. And we would watch it as kids and love it because you've got Pele doing overhead kicks and you've got, you know, Ozzy Idealist, you know, doing crazy things and Bobby Moore doing smash tackles and stuff. Sylvester Sloan is a terrible goalkeeper, objectively. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And he's not, he's never been a, a superb actor, Stallone, although I think Rocky is important in, in modern day film history. But he's not good in that. It's not his finest hour. He's kind of clunky and, and crappy. And even though I think back when it came out, people were like, oh, whatever, it's fine. Yeah. If you watch it now, it's really quite dated, but it holds like a little special place in my heart. So lovely answer and you can have it. Thank you. Uh, Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Stadsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. 
you'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Jean Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with Hacks writer and actor Pat Regan, on how their improv experience helped them when shooting scenes and what it was like writing scripts for specific actors. You'll also hear from crew members like the costume designers on what it was like creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Hear stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and more. Watch Hacks streaming exclusively on Max and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Now, what is a film that you used to love, you used to love it very much, but you've watched it recently and you've gone, oh dear, this does not hold up for me? Yeah, so I recently had this experience. I went to Amazon to find it and it was too expensive and I went to the DVD store to find it and it was too expensive and I ended up finding Flash Gordon at my local library Yeah, because I was saying to my ex, this was on the level of like A New Hope when I was a kid. (laughs) You know, this is an incredible sci-fi fantasy thing and she loves fantasy and we have to watch it it's brilliant it's set in space and and there's guys with wings and timothy dalton's in it and all this kind of stuff and and max von Sydow, who i was lucky enough to work with years ago so we watched it and it doesn't it doesn't hold up at all uh the things that i will say about it are the set design is great set down set design actually reminds me a little bit of what villeneuve is doing now you know kind of crazy dramatic sets and big primary colours and uh, extraordinary lighting work. And the costumes are amazing too, but the performances are terrible. The guy who plays Flash Gordon is terrible. Uh, Brian Blessed, who I remember thinking at the time when I was a kid, I was like, how do they make him fly? This is insane. He's just flying and I don't see strings or ropes and it's incredible. And you watch it now and it's like, like the wings don't even flap, you know. He's just got a flash coming in, and he has, you know, these these like what have kind of been cliched lines now, you know. Gordon's alive, and all that kind of stuff. Timothy Dalton, he's like thin and uh, weird and doesn't look great. And Max von Sydow's really fun, you know. Isn't there a good? I haven't seen it in many years, but I still think in my head it's a, certainly a good scary idea of having to put your hand yeah. in the thing. Yeah, you got this like massive kind of rockish log thing and there's a there's a creature underneath that looks like a kind of like a sheep's stomach with like a massive spike coming out of it and it'll stab you and if it stabs you once you're dead and flash has to do it and he does it and he fakes it like he's been got Mm. uh which was kind of cool and the guy who actually gets got by is peter duncan oh yeah he was a blue Blue peter Peter. presenter yeah i think that's where they got the idea for i'm a celebrity get me out of here yeah it might be true sequence yeah yeah i think that's a blue peter presenter put his hand in a thing with a scorpion they went that's something in there. I think that's a good shout. Yeah. Max von Sydow <clears throat> is amazing in it because yeah. he's outrageous and he's got these like uh, huge eyebrows and stuff. And the thing that's probably the strongest thing in it, and it still is impressive, is his daughter is gorgeous. Mm. And like, I'm trying not to objectify her too much because she's also great in it. And she's like the strong, the strong thing in it because yeah. she's kind of an empowered woman and she kind of tells Flash what to do and she tells Timothy Dalton what to do. But she wears, like, amazingly sexy outfits. And at one point, they, like, tie her down. 
mm. on on like a steel bed and they're performing all these like torture things on her that her dad says they should do and it's very very sexy so that's the, like the strongest thing in the movie but it's Basically. i was i was embarrassed when i was watching the movie i watched yeah. it with with my girlfriend at the time and i was embarrassed i put it on and i was like you're gonna look because she yeah. loves fantasy i was like you're gonna love this this is like a star wars film you've not seen you gotta love it and we sat down <laughs> and i looked over at her about 40 minutes in and she was like oh, yeah, yeah yeah no it's good it's good and i was like oh, uh, no. did your relationship recover no. no, you're not just going to No, let's go anyway. It's probably that. Flash yeah. killed it. Yeah, Flash killed it, yeah. Did not save the universe. This relationship's not alive. <laughs> um, what is... This is my favourite question. Yeah. Of all the questions. Yeah. What is... I should probably put this at the end because it's my favourite. What yeah, is... Yeah. Think about that. Uh, your, the film that means the most to you. Not necessarily because the film itself is any good. The film might not be good. But because the memory you have around that film. It might have been a first date you went on to see that film. Might have been the day someone died. Might have been the day you got a job. Something about it, you'll always remember that film for it. I think a notable mention for that is is probably Empire Strikes Back because that was the first Star Wars film that I ever saw and set me on a path to... Star Wars. Yeah, to Star Wars. (laughs) And and thinking that I could be an actor and wanting to know what that was. It was still kind of like being an astronaut or a racing car driver at that point. But I was like, oh, that looks fun. What is that? And then asked people about that. So that's that's a notable mention, but I think the one that means the most to me in terms of that particular thing is Reservoir Dogs, because Reservoir Dogs came out when I was at college studying yeah. drama. I was 17, mm. had a new social group that I'd been pretty tight with for a good six to nine months, and one of the kind of extraneous members of the social group was a guy called Mark, who drove like a pickup truck, which was really weird in Manchester at the time, still is now, like an old school pickup truck. We could all jump in the boot and stuff. And he showed up one night and said to us, have you heard about this film Reservoir Dogs? And it was, it doesn't sound like a weird, strange title now, but at the time we were like, Reservoir Dogs, what the fuck is that? And he's like, oh, it's supposed to be this amazing, independent heist movie. We were like, oh, okay. And he's like, it's this new guy and everyone's talking about him. And it was in the, the... what we called at the time Cannes Film Festival. So the Cannes Film Festival. We're like, oh, okay. And I was kind of the actor guy in the group. So I went off and watched film whatever that would have been, film 90 or film 89 or something like that, or 91 maybe with Barry Norman, in which he reviewed Reservoir Dogs and talked about Tarantino in these glowing, you know, conversation, you know, this is the new filmmaker breaking through type stuff. And... I then went into Manchester and I bought the screenplay. You could buy the screenplay from... Yeah, from Faber. Faber. Faber Faber, and Faber. And read the screenplay before the film came out. And and the the front cover of the screenplay is is Tim Roth covered in bloodline on the floor, Mm. which was like, who is that and what's happening there? And then I watched the film and was just... It it was... You know, it's it's very self-involved to to think this and I didn't actually think this but apart my brain thought this film was made for me you know yeah. what I mean it's one of those moments where you're like oh my god this is a film for me the soundtrack the costumes the story Tim Roth I just identified with Tim Roth he was, I knew he was English he was playing an American guy yeah. I always wanted to be in American movies he's covered in blood he's working with Harvey Keitel Harvey Keitel I, you know I loved Mean Streets and Taxi Driver by that point and it was a it was a total blossoming moment of Reservoir Dogs mixed with Oasis, mixed with College, mixed with 
new girlfriends and new friends and, and everything just came together in this perfect point, which was represented in film by Reservoir Dogs and made me think, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm not going to stop until I do something like that, you know. And uh, there's photos of me at a fancy dress party within that year as Mr. Orange, you know, slick back hair, suit, covered in blood with a gun. Stood next to Ian in his Freddy outfit. <laughs> Stood next to Gary Glitter. <laughs> really? Yeah, my best mate was Gary uh, Glitter. So he was wearing like a cod piece. That photo's dated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you couldn't do that nowadays. And um, I, it's just, I just identified with it. And still yeah. I've never met Tim Roth, uh, but I'd like to, to tell him how much of an influence that was. And I still think, I know that, I know it's quite derivative, uh, Reservoir Dogs, but in terms of just an adventurous, fun heist movie. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah, it's fantastic. My, uh, It's one of the very like cool things that my mum and dad did is they took me to a midnight screening of Reservoir Dogs and I was young. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And it was illegal, definitely illegal. <laughs> yeah. And we went to a cinema and I remember it because it was really exciting and really like scary. And it's when they just kept running it at midnight and there were people like drinking cans of beer, kept in cans of beer opening. Right. And there was a man who kept sort of heckling the film who's obviously hammered and he'd go like, what about Mr. Pussy? He'd shout. And then there was like a no smoking sign and he then lit a match off the no smoking sign and started smoking. I was like, this is the coolest thing Where was this cinema? <laughs> it was like in South London somewhere. Right, right. It's fucking great. Yeah. <laughs> but amazing. yeah, I mean, I was obsessed with Edward Dogs. Yeah. It's you forget it how fucking, I mean, it changed everything for a while. That, that moment after they've had the like a virgin conversation then yeah. it cuts to the music of little green bag and it's a slow-mo shot of them yeah. all in black and white suits just leaving the diner and it is iconic but if you if you take a step back and have a look at it it's what seven guys walking in slow-mo wearing suits yeah. but there's something else going on there i mean obviously yeah. the, the song's amazing but I remember just watching it going, yeah, yeah, that. I want to be that. I want yeah. that. How do I, I want to be slow-mo. How do I be slow-mo? How do, you, how do I, I become slow-mo slow -mo in real life? <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Absolutely Great. brilliant. Great answer. Thank um, you. Now, other than uh, Ming's daughter being tortured, what is the film that you found sexiest? I, th I, I actually wrote down in my diary, I made notes in my diary of, of, of the method of how this was done because I thought, well, if I, if I, it was only like 12 at the time and I hadn't really had like major kissy moments I thought well I'll do it like this was uh, Top Gun okay take yeah. your breath away you take your breath away yeah so you oh, know I think I was like fascinated by French kissing because I was like oh mm. interesting what's all that about and obviously Tom Cruise was the flavour of that year and, yeah. and so many subsequent years after that Kelly McGillis was really quite beautiful and gorgeous in that film mm. and I made notes, which my brother read and I was really embarrassed about, <laughs> of like, you know, okay, kiss, and then push them towards a wall. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then kiss. Throw them into wall. <laughs> throw them into wall, if you like them. And then kiss by the wall, and then lie them down, and then kiss the same way that you kiss them on the wall. So much wall admin. Yeah, it? yeah. Uh, so my, I remember my brother read that, and he put like a little, ooh, in inverted commas <laughs> next to it. I was devastatedly embarrassed. You Move know, a metre away from the wall. Yeah. At this point, you're too obsessed with the wall. <laughs> don't focus kiss, on Don't that. make the mistake of kissing the wall at any point. Um, I was like, I was a bit of a late bloomer. Yeah. And my best mate, Gary Glitter, was... Um, <laughs> was, uh, was we don't like, hang out anymore. I don't know where he is. <laughs> Thailand or something. He, he was like... Um, 
he, he was a football player and he was quite kind of physically and yeah. mentally quite mature when, when we were, you know, 12, 13. He was much more like 15, 16 year old. So he had a lot of like significant girlfriends and he was doing all these things and he was, you know, kind of living his amazing life at that point. And I was, I, I like girls and I think girls like me, but I wasn't a threat in terms of like, oh, is he going to kiss me or anything? So I was always like, oh, you're very cute. And I was like, oh, fuck off with the cute thing. That's really annoying. Um, you wait till you wait till you're standing near a wall. <laughs> um, so I think I just kind of thought, well, if I don't seem to naturally have the opportunities or the chances or the girls, then maybe what I can bring is a little bit of studying of of that particular medium, so that when it does happen, they'll be like, oh my god, I can't believe. We didn't see this guy because he, he's... He kisses like Tom Cruise. He's got it down, do you know what I mean? <laughs> so I was doing all that kind of stuff. Yes, yeah, so Top Gun was a big thing. That's another thing that, like, I still think it holds up. And there's obviously, like, you know, I think the the, the aviation stuff still holds up. But yeah. that's another thing that I watched with someone who had never seen it before that kind of went, yeah, it's not a great movie. And I was like, oh, because, like, in 1983, mm. that was a great movie. And this, I think maybe boys like it a little bit more than... Girls, you know, but that seems to have maybe aged a little bit. But they're doing a new one, right? Yeah, they are. Tom Cruise, I'm assuming, is going to play like the Viper type instructor guy. I would have thought if it's him, he'll he'll just be playing Maverick, and it'll be about Maverick. Get, he'll have to get up there again. Yeah, you'll have the kid because I think it's Miles Teller. You'll have the kid okay. <coughs> will struggle and he won't be able to do it. And Tom Cruise will be like, "Give Cruise. me the helmet, I'll go in. Let me go get him." And then he'll hit the brakes and he'll fly right back. Give the mail. <laughs> uh, um, so Top Gun is your answer. Top Gun, yeah. Now we have a subcategory here. You don't have to answer it. Some people do, some people don't. And the subcategory is Troubling Boners, Worrying Wide-Eyes. Is there a film you found sexy or arousing that you thought, perhaps I shouldn't? Now, th- this is all based on pausing the image for me. Because, which I'm sure you probably had these answers before. No, we've never had... Oh, really? No answer we started with based on pausing the image. Go away. So, so, this is back in video VHS time. Yeah. Pausing the image, as we know, did a little flicker. Yeah. If you pause a DVD image, it's, it's solid. But the, the, the video image can sometimes kind of ghost in and out of the image. But I was well-versed at that. And all of these notable mentions, and the one that I'm actually going to say, is all based on... Pause the image. So, um, Jeff Goldblum's The Fly includes a girl who, when he falls out with Gina Davis, Mm -hmm. he then goes to a bar and breaks a guy's arm in an arm wrestling fight and he picks up a prostitute at the bar and they have, like, unbelievably, uh, you know, adventurous insect sex, I guess. Uh, And in the morning, she gets up out of bed without a top on and Mm. I found that very sexy, so I'd pause that image. And then, uh, you know, the classic basic instinct, which I think is probably the most the paused. The most paused moment of all time, yeah. yeah. And then Under Siege has a paused oh, image. With I mean, that's an incredible... Arika Eleniak, is that Arika her name? Eleniak. From Baywatch. Oh, boy. Who was very talented in, in a couple of different areas. And, it's um, such a ridiculous uh, setup for her. She she pops out of a birthday cake, cake. and starts stripping, but but no one's there. Yeah, and she's got her eyes closed, yeah. and he's got he's come in to fight terrorists. But they let the 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 construct of the conceit of the scene is she hasn't noticed that no one's there and that everyone's dead because she's got her eyes closed for ages until she gets 
naked and then she opens her eyes and goes, oh no, there's Sarah somewhere. Yeah. And then what happens to her? Does she get, does he save her? Does she get yeah, shot? He, no, he goes, come with me, put your coat on. Right. Yeah, so that. Yeah, yeah. But the number one one, because it was the image that I paused the most, isn't the sexiest by any means mm. out of all of them, but it is one of the films that I've watched the most, which I think is the reason why the image was paused so much, is The Life of Brian. Because there's a moment fully naked. in The Life of Brian where uh, he takes, what's her name, home? I can't remember her name. And then his mum, obviously his dad, yeah. comes in and goes, Who's that? Yeah. And so she she goes to defend him at one point because mm. the mum is shouting at him saying, There's a multitude of people out there. <laughs> yes, they started following me yesterday. And she, Judith, Judith she's called, Mum, Judith, Judith, Mum. Slaps him. Um, she's like fully naked, yeah. so, so that image got paused a lot. And you know, it was quite daring at the time because, like, you know, mm -hmm. going to have a totally frank conversation. We only had one TV downstairs, one video downstairs. I was going to ask this question. So, Go on. so I would have to kind of time it with coming home from school at like mm -hmm. four thirty, and my parents came home at five, and my brother would usually come home at five from college. So you have like half an mm -hmm. hour to like get Pause. stuff going downstairs and you know you can sometimes you know get caught short you did you get I mean. caught never got caught but close but there was a few times where the key would go in the door and i'd have to like shut a few things off did you and your brother like work in shifts how did that work don't really know too much about my brother's masturbatory habits mm. he kept it quite if you're listening t uh, tweet us in yeah, we'll... <laughs> yeah send us a green message he's quite um he's quite covert my brother in terms of <laughs> <laughs> in terms of his wanking. Yeah, in terms of his wanking. But in, terms of, in terms of like his feelings as well. My brother's much more like my dad. My, I wear my feelings a little bit more on my sleeve, although mm -hmm. I am a little bit more... I do have elements of my dad as well. But I'm, I'm more like my mum. My brother's... You'd have, he's, you'd have to like really get emotions out of him for him to explain himself. And I think that was the same with any elements of vulnerability. So I think it would be much more mortifying for my brother to get caught in that place than it would be for me. So I just think he just did not entertain it unless right. you know people were away for the entire night or the weekend or something okay. yeah. good answer yeah uh what is the film that you most relate to might so, be the film might be the character might be the vibe of it something you go that film is me so we have mentioned this before it was a notable mention earlier on but this is yeah. probably the one that i most relate to in terms of just my journey in life and i'm i'm Hopefully, I'll explain it so it doesn't sound too pretentious. But uh, it is the fountain. Okay. And the reason why is I've always had this feeling that there is another existence going on at the same time mm -hmm. that I can tap into, and I've sometimes been able to tap into it in meditation or in exercise or in plant medicine, where I'll suddenly go, "Oh, that's right." There's this other thing going on. There's this slightly taller, thinner version of me that's in this particular parallel universe. And then there's another existence that not I'm having, because it's not really an I'm thing, but that, that is occurring, uh, which I've had for a while, which is a planet on fire. And I, or this, this thing that I'm able to experience is trying to exit the planet whilst also bringing along with him his best friend and something that would you would assume on this 
in Earth to be like a princess type character, a royal, someone of a royal lineage. So lots of times the planet's on fire. I can't find my best friend. I can't find the princess and I die. Sometimes I find my best friend. I don't find the princess. I die. Sometimes I find all three of them. We can't get to the spaceship in time. Sometimes I find all three of them. We get to the spaceship. We leave. Spaceship blows up. It's all these different things. It comes in dreams. It comes in... This is like visions you have when you're meditating. Yeah, sometimes when I'm meditating, sometimes when I'm in a euphoric state or Mm -hmm. I'll just get flash images of it. So that happens a lot. And then I also had it once when I was meditating where I went somewhere planetarily wise and I was greeted on this beach by a taller, naked, thinner version of me with no hair, like like a yellowish, like a peach yellow version and I went over and I was like oh wow this is amazing I've never had this experience before like what's going on and this person said well let's go for a walk stop you getting so excited because I was very excited let's just go for a walk we've got time so we went for a walk and we're kind of I'm kind of kicking the sand up and and I said so so what's happening here and he said I am your higher self or one of your higher selves and I'm here for a kind of questions and answer session if you want to ask me anything so I was like, oh, great, okay, so what can I ask you? He said, you can ask me anything you want. So I can't specifically remember then what I asked him, but he, he, that person left me with a feeling of well-being and, and calm, and mm-hmm. as I was leaving, said, I'm here, I'm always here, so if you, if you want to come back, come see me, and this thing will just keep going on and on. So those, those narratives... And that happened in a, in a meditation? Happened in a meditation, right. yeah, yeah. But you don't remember what you asked, you just felt better. Now, I don't remember what I specifically asked the person. I asked them a bunch of questions, but I did feel better, probably more than anything else, because they just said, I'm always here, you can always ask, yeah. don't worry, I'm not going anywhere, you can always come back. And in the meditation, the meditation was definitely non-guided, because guided ones tend to push me, certainly, into a, into a place of, okay, I'll concentrate on yeah. breathing or whatever. This was a, a silent meditation, and uh, lots of times I feel like, if I if I feel like, the word correctly is probably not, not the right word to use here, but if I feel like I'm doing the right thing, mm-hmm. lots of times in meditation I'll feel like everything starts to spin and spiral and maybe gravity goes weird, so suddenly I'll be, I'll be kind of tumbling and, yeah. and floating and all that kind of stuff. And if that happens, then I'll try and remove the ego out of it and just think, okay, stay here, don't get too overly impressed. Woohoo, I'm doing it, because then you fall out of it, you know. Yeah. Uh, and in one of those moments, it seems that I was just transported to this place and I had this, what felt like to me like a five minute experience, but could very easily have been a 10 second mm. experience. And this, this has all happened after the fountain, but in watching the fountain and in seeing those dramatic jump cuts with Hugh Jackman, where he looks up and then suddenly he goes to space or he, or he, he becomes a conquistador and all that kind of stuff. I remember watching it thinking, maybe some people might watch it and think, what the fuck is going on here? That's, that's yeah. a pretentious load of shit. But I remember thinking it going, yeah, I can have moments of thinking, not like a deja vu thing of like, I've been here before or, or this has happened before, but just of like, this is not my first go around and it mm. won't be my last. And I'm glad that a film kind of got into that a little bit. Um, have you watched Twin Peaks The Return? No. Movie? The 18 part. Netflix thing. Showtime. No, I watched the first episode and was like, okay, 
Is it worth it? It's, I, I, I love it and obsessed with it. And I think given everything you've said, yeah. it might appeal to you. So now, talk to me about the first one. You loved the first one. You were engaged in the first one. In the original Twin Peaks, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, I was like 10 yeah. and obsessed with it. And then I've always loved David Lynch. It's and then brilliant. when the, this new one came, I was very nervous and I love it. Okay, it's good. Fun. But it's hard work. Yeah. It's really hard work and it's not for everyone, but... He's a fucking genius. Yeah, he is, he is. And the whole thing is very much dreams and parallel universe and, and who is the... We're all in a dream and who is the dreamer? Yeah, because he's, he's a massive meditator, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lynch, transcendental meditator. And he says that he writes from his meditations, yeah. you know. And it's I, like I, being in that. I think you, I think you would like it. You've just w- got to go with it because it's hard. I'll give it a second go. So, what is objectively... The greatest film of all time. Might not be your favourite, but the one you go, yeah, all right, that's the pinnacle of cinema, that is. Yeah. It's a tough one, right? Because I think yeah. in listening to your previous podcast, I think this question has been one of the ones that I've been the most interested in because that is the beauty of any art form is people can objectively say, well, Picasso's the greatest. And yeah. then someone goes, well, no, objectively, Dali's the greatest. No, Stubbs is the greatest. That's, that's what makes yeah. the art form amazing. My own personal preferences, uh, in terms of its technical ability and just this, the experience of watching the film, I I think objectively the greatest film ever made is Apocalypse Now. Great answer. Yeah. Love it. Good. That's good. It's a good start. Why hasn't that come up on this show yet? Yeah, I thought that. fucking great. When I was listening to other things, I thought someone's going to mention... And it has something in it. In the way that you think The Exorcist has evil in it, there's something in Apocalypse Now that is, and I don't know what the word is, it's not evil, but something like mad or profound. It's fucking great. I I think... There's magic in it. There's a bit of magic in it. Yeah. I think you're tapping into Coppola at at like his his real kind of Mm. high peak, you know. Confidence-wise, he's he's just done Godfather one and two. Obviously, done the conversation. He's probably the world's biggest director at that point. Yeah. He goes to what ends up being the Philippines for Vietnam. Stays there too long. You got Hearts of Darkness, which is yeah. arguably the greatest film about the making of a film ever. Mm-hmm. And once you once you learn about what happened, that they went like two years over over budget and uh, over time and budget and you know recast. Uh, Harvey, Harvey Keitel was originally going to be yeah. Martin Sheen's character and then Martin Sheen had a heart attack and then they had to wait for him. And Why did they recast Harvey Keitel? I just don't think it was what Coppola was expecting or right. wanting. And I, and I think at that point in Keitel's career, you probably couldn't tell him anything. You right. know, you couldn't yeah. say, hey, Harvey, can you bring it down a little bit? <laughs> uh, I think he was doing something and it was either a yes or a no and, and Coppola was like, this isn't working for me. All of that, including Hopper, who's full on crazy and take, he said at the time, taking acid and, and a yeah. fuck up at the time, but brilliant. All of that. And then you got Brando at the end, this like, mm. if, if you're dealing out a pack of cards, suddenly the Joker in the pack falls out and you're like, holy shit, you got Brando at the end, you know? So I had worked with Martin Sheen when I was like yeah. 19. On what? On this uh, submarine movie called Hostile Waters with uh, Rutger Hauer, who was really cool and crazy, and Martin Sheen, who was just a total gentleman and and brilliant. Great experience. And uh, at that point, Apocalypse Now had been my favourite film. I think when anyone ever asked me, you know, if you could take 
you know, one movie somewhere or Desert Island movie or all that kind of stuff. But the reason why Apocalypse Now always stands out as the, as the greatest film for me is I never get bored of watching it because, I mean, it is long, which is helpful, but I always see something new or mm-hmm. hear something new. There's so much nuance in that, you know, and it was one of the first times in history that there was a layering of images. So you didn't have, like, this scene ends, this scene comes in. You would have that amazing cut of the ceiling fan mirroring the helicopter blades. And they did that throughout the whole movie. So Brando would, like, whisper something. So you'd hear his voice, and then suddenly his image would come in as Martin Sheen kind Mm. of looks in a different direction, in a shadow somewhere. That was the first time I'd ever seen that, where I thought, oh, so... I realised that editing can be an art form, but I didn't realise that the actual cross-edit point can be an art form, you know. The music's extraordinary. I mean, that, you know, the opening bit of, you know, the doors saying this is the end and the blowing napalm all over the forest was incredible. Um, It just... If I'm going to have a debate with someone in terms of Citizen Kane, Godfather, Gone with the Wind, Wizard of Oz, any of those things that people go, it's this... Mm. I would be happy to stand there with Apocalypse Now and say, right, I've, I've got some weaponry here that yeah. I can use, you know, so, yeah. You can have it. Cheers. You can have it. Cheers. Um, what is the film you have or could watch the most over and over again? I've got a few notable mentions here because, as I said earlier on, I'm kind of obsessed with movies, so if I get oh, yeah, something... Yeah, you've seen a lot over yeah, and over again. I'll yeah. just watch it over and over again. So, Goonies, Beverly Hills Cop, Empire Strikes Back and Dumb and Dumber... I've seen all those movies over, let's conservatively say 150 times, but it's, it could easily be 200. I think, I think Empire Strikes Back I've seen over 200 times. Dumb and Dumber, maybe 150. The other two, Goonies and Beverly Hills Cop, I've seen over 200 times. Um, it's just like something that makes you feel good, something that, you know, it's like a, it's like a food on a, on a menu item in a restaurant where you're like, well, I could try that type of pizza, but I know I love this one, so I'm just going to get that one. <laughs> That's what those all represent. The great experiences. Have have American hot. Yeah, it's my American hot. Yeah. Where you just go, well, it's a given. It's going <laughs> to work for me. I'll just get that, you know. Yeah. Um, so those are all notable mentions. But the film that I've seen the most, and the reason why I know I've seen it the most is because when I went to college, I watched it every night for the first year of college. And then the friend that I shared the experience with, he and I would then watch it throughout that next year. I wouldn't say every night because he wasn't at my house every night, but certainly once or twice a week because we would hang out. And that is, this is Spinal Tap. Amazing. Amazing. Um, Great. It's short. Spinal Tap is a a tight 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely loaded with jokes. It's a feel-good movie. I mean, obviously the band break up, but it's a feel-good movie because they get back together. It's a romantic comedy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. They love each other. They love each other, those two. And... We had girlfriends at the time, my friend Tom and I. <clears throat> we had girlfriends at the time. My girlfriend was called Nicola Mason. I can't remember the name of his girlfriend, but they were friends, those two. Right. Nick and the other girl. And obviously Tom and I were best mates. And we were in our spinal tap period, which is what we call it now, where we were both just talking like Nigel Tufnell and David St. Havens the entire time. So with these girls... They, the girls would be like, can you shut up now? We'd be like, yeah. we're, we're not doing anything. What are we doing? I'm not... Are you making some sort of voice? And it was constant, man. We couldn't get out of it because it was so much fun. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like ordering in pubs or restaurants or just the fact that it irritated the girls so much. And I won't say that we broke up because of that, but it definitely... When I got on my own sometimes with Nick, 
she would say, come on, can you yeah. give it a break now? Like, it's it's not an hour of like, aha, great. It would be like all day where you just say normal stuff like, oh, should we go to the other <laughs> pub now? You, should you finish your drink? I just love Nigel Tofner. I met Christopher Guest with yeah. Elijah Wood, who had worked with his mum, Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, we were in, I don't know where we were, actually. We were in a hotel lobby at an event and we were talking and like 20 yards away was Jamie Lee Curtis and her husband, who I recognised. And I said to Elijah, there's Christopher Guest. And Elijah said, oh, I know Jamie Lee Curtis. She played my mum in a movie. And I went, you, we have to go over. And he was like, no, I don't know that one. And I was like, we have to go over. Come on, we have to go over. So I like frog marched him over. And he and she was lovely. Mm. He was like, oh, Elijah. And he was like, this is my friend, Dom. And she was like, oh, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. And her husband was there. And I turned. And he's, he's very known for being kind of laconic and yeah. monosyllabic, Christopher Guest. And uh, I said, I'm so sorry I'm going to do this. But I said, Spinal Tap is like, my favourite funny film of all time and you're like my comedy hero type thing. And he just listened, listened, listened mm -hmm. and just kind of went, thank you. And I was like, okay, that's the best it's going to get. And then we just said bye to Jimmy the Curtis and walked away. And I thought it wasn't unpleasant, yeah. but you wanted more. I just yeah. wanted him to drop into David for a moment. Do a bit. Come on, can you just, if I do the voice, can you do the voice? <laughs> Well, it's one louder, isn't it? And he just he just wouldn't do it, you know. But he's so Flash Gordon, and this is Final Tap ruined two of your relationships. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think Oops, movies have, you know. Yeah. I think I think there's there's movies that have, and also like like good actors, I think, or good artists. Don't know who said it. It might have been Picasso. Said good good artists steal, you know. Mm -hmm. All, all yeah, artists yeah. steal, you know. And I do steal stuff from movies. Like I will climb well. Tyler Durden's a big one for me in Fight Club. I'll climb stairs like Tyler Durden. I don't know if you've seen the way that Brad Pitt climbs stairs, but he does this kind of, he like hangs his back leg when he climbs stairs, which I'll do. Right. And also, like another example is like in Beverly Hills Cop, he's in the art gallery waiting to see his old friend and Serge comes over and says, <laughs> um, and uh, he's brilliant, that guy, because he's only in the movie for like, couple yeah. of scenes and he's amazing and he says something to axel foley and axel says i didn't understand what you said and if i ever need to say i didn't understand what you says uh, said i'll always put that pause in so i won't go oh i didn't understand what you said just then i'll always go i didn't understand what you said and it's axel foley you know and, and i'll do that a lot with yeah with han solo with i've got quite a few like outfits that are like Tyler Durden y, like, because Tyler Durden wore these like quite weird sunglasses or like strange jackets and stuff that's Tyler Durden y, because I watch a lot of films like in my house in the day. If I'm on my own, I'll have a film going, which mm. might be something that I've seen before, I'll just have it on in the background. And then certainly moving into making dinner, eating dinner and, you know, finishing up dinner, there'll be a movie that I actually want to watch. So I think I average probably two movies a day and then on a weekend, you know, if I'm having like a big movie day, then yeah. I'll, I'll watch three type things. So they're always on yeah. and it just, it just gets into your system, doesn't it? You know? Great, I love it. Yeah. What is, uh, don't like to be negative, we'll do it quickly. What's the worst film you've ever seen? So I wrote this thing here about set and setting and timing and stuff like that mm -hmm. because I saw two films when I was a kid and I don't think either one of them are necessarily bad 
But it was just, at the time, it was just the wrong time to see it. The first one was me and my cousin and my brother watched Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Okay. Which was lauded as this, like, yeah. anarchic horror comedy thing. And we watched it and we're like, what the fuck was that? Like, it wasn't scary, it wasn't funny, it wasn't great, it was cheap, yeah. it was crap. It was kind of an easy one yeah. because you're like, well, I think a lot of people can kind of say it's crap. But my cousin and I went to see Wayne's World for the first time at the cinema and we didn't understand it. And I think it was just, I think we were expecting something else. We hadn't seen any of the Saturday Night Live things. Right. We were expecting something else. We showed up at the cinema. Maybe we weren't in the right headspace, we weren't in the right mood, but we came out and we were just like, what was that? And I was like, and this is called Anthony. I was like, and I, I don't know. I didn't get it. So we just went and got a kebab and went home. We're only like 13 or 14 at the time. Yeah. And then within a week, it was like the smash yeah. comedy of the year. Did you feel like an alien in there? Yeah, I felt like embarrassed that I'd watched it and didn't like it. And yeah. then I went and watched it again with my friends and pretended that I hadn't watched it before and kind of watched them all laughing and go, oh, yeah, yeah, good that be? And then it obviously became funny, you know, yeah. like there's, there's things about it that are, that are funny. But So I, I wrote that thing about set and setting. Mm. I think sometimes it's just like, it catches you at the wrong time. Yeah. Like another example of ruining a relationship with someone based on a movie. I, I exposed someone to the um, meeting people is easy film, you know, the Cecil G documentary about Radiohead. Right. It follows them around their OK Computer tour around the United States. So it basically deals with the music of OK Computer at a time where Radiohead have gone from a lauded band mm. to the biggest band in the world and Tom York's losing his mind and they're all kind of having slight you know, crisis of conscience. And uh, I love it. Generally shot in black and white. It's a brutal film, but it's mm. brilliant. And I turned to her at one point and she was crying. I was like, oh, what's... What? And she was like, this album, OK Computer, just reminds me of a time in my life that was really difficult. And I said, do you want me to turn the movie off? And she said, no. I said, are you sure? And she said, yeah. And we watched it and she just had an awful night. And I was like, you should have just told me to turn it off. Yeah. And she said, no, you were watching it. And I was like, I don't care. I've seen it 15 times before. But so there's another example of so, ruining a relationship. So, so meeting people is easy. Like this is final tap or flash Gordon. Yeah. Uh, or what we call the three the three that got away. <laughs> what is the film that made you laugh the most? I mean, is it Spinal Tap? Spinal Tap is in the notable mentions. Okay. So I'll very quickly go through the notable mentions. Um, Spinal Tap, yeah. Dumb and Dumber, extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, what We Do in the Shadows, Taker's movie, which is one of the things that you can just watch over and over again. It's full of amazing lines. Do you know this film, Windy City Heat? Is that, uh, 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 what's his name? Who And they hire, a, they put on a fake film yeah. for their... For their yeah, it's for called their, Perry Caravello. Yes, and he's like mad and yeah. they sort of trick it. It's like, it's like the Truman Show. Prank, prank. Yeah, the yeah. whole movie is a prank. He thinks he's the star of a movie, but he isn't. Yes. I now, it seems it. very cruel and then there are elements of it that are mm. very cruel, but then I've met, Perry, because he lives in oh, LA, yeah. and he's, you know, he's all the things that you don't want to be. He's misogynistic and mm -hmm. racist and homophobic and all these kind of things. And he's been, you know, basically like trying to get money out of these guys and suing yeah. them for years. And, and they turned one of these things into a movie. I mean, there's a lot of films that I mentioned that I, that I would recommend to people. If there's one film in this podcast that I would say to people, you've probably never heard of it. Yeah, yeah. See if you can hunt it out. And What's watch his name? It. Animal. I've forgotten his name, the director. Uh, oh, um, Bobcat Goldthwaite. Bobcat Goldthwaite, yeah. Yeah, he was, yeah. he's getting me so much, like, funny noise. He's, he yeah. makes, all, he has that, like, crazy voice in uh, Police Academy. Not mm. to be confused with the guy who makes all the noises in Police Academy. Yeah. But he's the guy who kind of talks like that. 
it's a brilliant film. It is a little mean yeah. and a little hard to take, but it is laugh out loud funny. Yeah. And there's another film that I've watched well over a hundred times. But the one that I want to mention just because he's a big comedy icon of mine and I think he's brilliant is Alpha Papa, the uh, Alan Partridge oh, movie. Great. Coogan's from Manchester and, mm-hmm. and uh, when I was 17 or 18 and starting to act professionally, I think Coogan was probably 28 or 29. I think he's about 10 years older than me. And there was a lot of rumours about Coogan, some that were true, some that weren't. That, you know, he likes flash cars and there's rumours mm-hmm. of like, oh yeah, you'll see Coogan like driving around a white Lamborghini in the centre of town or driving a red Ferrari. Now, I'm not sure how much of that is true. I do know that he drove crazy cars and stuff. Yeah. I do know that he was big on the club scene and, you know, slayed a lot of beautiful women uh, in Manchester and around the world, it seems. The Radio 4 show, radio mm-hmm. show that he did, has, from, from, from my experience, the funniest moment that I've ever heard in headphones. It actually made me stop. I was walking to rehearsal, I had to stop because I was hysterically laughing so much where he whispers to a guy who's doing an impression of him badly. So he's brought a guy onto his show to do an impression of him, but okay. it goes, it gets to a point where it's insulting Alan and he won't stop doing it. And eventually Alan leans forward to the microphone and says, if you speak again, I will physically hit you. <laughs> and I remember like being <laughs> bent over double in a corridor in the BBC <laughs> Like needing to go into a rehearsal because yeah. I was like, it was like either on time or slightly late, and I was like, <laughs> like this, embarrassed, you know. And I've never met Coogan, but I mean, Alan's just—we all love Alan. I yeah. mean, he's just an incredible accomplishment, comedy accomplishment, even a dramatic accomplishment. Mm-hmm. I think he's amazing, and I think, I think Ricky Gervais is great. I think Ricky Gervais steals a lot from Coogan from his work, and I think, you know, I think it would be fair for for Gervais at some point to say Coogan is a big influence of mine, but he never does, and I think that's a bit of a shame. But Alpha Papa could have been a train wreck, and it was amazing. The writing is amazing, and I would watch it with Billy Boyd in the cinema yeah. in New Zealand. And there's a moment where um, he's on a pier at the end, and he's trying to negotiate with Colin Meaney to give him the gun, yeah. and uh, he ends up getting shot in uh, in the foot and then his security guard, to try and cause a diversion, jumps off the end of the pier. And like I was laughing when I was listening to the radio show, Billy was hysterically laughing, like embarrassingly, in this New Zealand cinema, like high-pitched squeaking. Like <laughs> and I was sat next to him, completely in joy because my yeah. best mate was having that moment. So that sticks in my head. And um, it just, like any comedy film, it gets better and better the yeah. more you watch it. Because you know the joke's coming and you're looking at your mates or you're feeling inside, you're, oh, my God, they're going to say this thing. It's brilliant. There's a, you tell me it because I haven't seen it enough, but there's a moment, I can't remember the exact line, but I think it's like a perfect bit of writing and it's when Darren Boyd, as the policeman, like, fake arrests him and he says, he says something like, what would you say to your kids? He says something like, I'd, I'd tell them off. Uh, no, I wouldn't really. I, I don't see them enough, so I'd just tell them I love them. It's so, like, so beautiful. Oh man, something like but that. There's I'm a sure bit. I, I mean, there's so many horrible moments yeah, yeah. in that. Like, I'd love to meet Coogan. I think mm. as he's as he's got older, I think he's might become a little bit more approachable now, potentially. Because yeah. I think when he was younger, he was a bit 
bit spiky, but he's always been my comedy icon. I think, like, since Sellers, Coogan, yeah. Coogan is the guy that steps into his shoes. I just think he's he's just brilliant. He doesn't do anything wrong yeah. comedically, you know. And as an actor, I think he's really talented. He's brilliant. Yeah. I watched uh, Stan and Ollie last night. Yeah, I loved it. He's so good in it. Yeah, he is. Really good. That moment where he gets into the bed with yeah. Ollie at the end, where they've had that fight, and he kind of thinks it's over mm. and he's going to go back and he's not well enough to do the thing anymore. And it's a real Stan and Ollie moment because they're in yeah. bed together and he gets in bed with him and he just kind of puts his hand on his hand and they don't really say anything. Mm. It's kind of like, I'm so I want to say I'm sorry, but I'm not going to and I'm not going to say the same, but it's fine. And that was really beautiful yeah. and, and tender, you know. Yeah, I, I thought it was great. Yeah. Uh, Dominic Monaghan, uh, you have been an excellent guest. Thank you. Uh, very much appreciate you getting in touch. I'm very you. glad you've done the podcast. Now, when you um, meditated yourself to death and uh, you exploded yourself into millions of pieces, uh, although you crossed over into multiple planes, um, when we, the undertakers, also meditated, we went and picked up the bits of you. They were all in different existences. We were on. Some of you was on that planet that was on fire. Yeah. Some of you was on that spaceship with the princess that was about to explode. We picked up all these bits of you from different dimensions and everything. But some of you bits are bigger because in one of the dimensions you were tall and thin. Remember? Sure, sure. We managed to drag them back to this earth, put them in a coffin. But because of the different shapes and sizes of you. There was so much more than we were expecting. The coffin is absolutely ram-jammed. Right. And there is no room in this coffin except for one DVD. We can slip in the side. If we put this DVD in the side, you can take it with you to the other side. And on the other side, there's movie night every night. And one night, it's your movie night. So what film are you taking to show everyone on your movie night? Okay, it's not my favourite film. It's not... I don't necessarily watch the film that much but i thought about this quite a lot mm -hmm. if i'm taking a film to heaven and i want people in that place to have a valuable experience and maybe a worthwhile experience and also for me to enjoy it the film that i'm going to take is is amelie yeah because it's just such a wonderful example of how to live a life i think and i think if there's people in heaven with regrets or struggling with dying too early or leaving people behind that they've loved, yeah. maybe watching Amelie and, and getting that warm, toasty feeling in your system of like one person can make a difference mm. and one person can find happiness just within themselves and you have a choice every day to get up and do the right thing, be the right person. I think Amelie's a great, a great example of that. You know, like I think Stanley. I think I think he like paraphrased something, but it's now attributed to Stanley, which is great. Where he had said a hero is someone that does the right thing when no one's watching. You know, yeah. and I think Amelie does represent that in a way. She just wants to help people. She just wants people to feel better in this kind of complicated traumatic existence that we call life so like i said it's not my favorite film mm. but i do love it everyone was one. expecting apocalypse now and then you're giving them lovely amity. yeah yeah well it's, you, you watch apocalypse now in heaven you think oh yeah all the all this violence all this death all these yeah. regrets all this Doesn't all this cerebral mm. you know kind of 
mess and turmoil that Brando's going through and Martin Sheen's going through, and I wonder if these people in heaven really need to see that right now. Whereas one of the other ones that, that I was thinking about bringing with me was uh, Inside Out, because I thought, well, that ultimately is a, is a positive story, but it'll also make a lot of people cry. Emily yeah. might make you cry, but more than anything else, I think you're left with the feeling of what a wonderful world this place is and what a gift it is that we were once alive because now we're all dead. Yeah. yeah. Lovely. Dominic, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. That was great. Uh, I think we all look forward to a little film you've got coming out soon uh, called Star Wars. Yeah. And uh, is there anything you would like to say before you go? No, this is great. This is an amazing podcast. I, uh, I love and I'm obsessed with films. So finding a podcast that is basically dealing with people's obsession with films and learning certain films that I've never heard before, sitting there with a notebook going, oh, right, I'll go check yeah. out that film. I'm going to get obsessed with that one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Brilliant, man. Thank you so much. Cheers. Take it easy. So that was episode 28. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein to hear the 25 minutes of extra content with Dominic where we break down the many, 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 many endings of The Return of the King and decide on the greatest set pieces of all time. You can also help support the show and find any other treats that might be hiding there. And if you do enjoy this show, please subscribe and give it five stars and a nice review for the simple reason that apparently it helps our numbers. And that means more people will get to hear it and I can keep making it, etc, 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 until we all die or the world explodes. Thank you so much to Dominic for doing this show. It was really lovely to spend time with him. I want to thank Scroobius Pip and the Distraction Pieces Network. I want to thank Buddy Peace for producing it. Thanks to ACAST for hosting it. Thanks to Adam Richardson for the graphics and Lisa Lydon for the photography. And thank you all for listening. I'll see you next week for another brilliant episode with the Dr. Jodie Whittaker's newest companion. It's Mandip Gill. Oh, it's a corker. You don't want to miss it. But in the meantime, have a very nice week. And please, all of you, be excellent to each other. Sometimes I dream of becoming an actor. Have you ever dreamt of becoming an actor? Maureen, what is it you think I'd do for a living? Never mind. Sounds like you need the New York Film Academy. NIFA offers workshops, BFA and MFA degrees and summer camps in filmmaking, acting, journalism and more online and on campuses across the globe. To make films alongside industry professionals, explore more at nyfa.edu. Thanks, Brett. Thank you, Maureen. Maureen, your Canva presentation looks brilliant. Thanks, Brett. That's because I used AI-powered Canva presentations. I just described what I wanted and Canva presentations generated the perfect slides. You can even make a talking presentation for people to watch on their own time. Check this out. Recording. 101 Reasons Why Beaches is the Saddest Film Ever Made by your neighbour Maureen. Is it easy to use? If you can use a computer, you can nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Oh, thanks, my name, Maureen. Yeah, thank you.